Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show where you will learn how to rehumanize and revive your workplace atmosphere. My first guest is Dr. Rosie Ward. She began her career in the fitness industry with a BA in kinesiology and a master's in public health. After experiencing the effects of a toxic workplace, she decided to shift gears, earning her PhD in organizational management. After holding various leadership and consulting roles, Rosie co-founded Salveo Partners LLC, a consulting and professional development firm dedicated to rehumanizing workplaces so organizations and their people can thrive. We're talking about her newest book, co-authored with her partner, John Robeson, Rehumanizing the Workplace, Future-Proofing Your Organization While Restoring Hope, Well-Being, and Performance. Welcome, Rosie. This is like an anthem, I think. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we need some pom-poms. We need a little backbeat, you know. <laughs> right. We need a beat. We need some music. Let's go. Let's go, because this is big. This is big. The world is coming back to work and what a mess. <laughs> yeah, that's the understatement of the century, right? <laughs> right? I mean, nobody knows what to do. Everybody knows that we've got to do it and everybody's trying to get back there. But the information that we're getting from out there in the ethers is affecting corporate policy. People are uncertain. Like, how do you deal with this mishmash? That is a loaded question. And I think the key is it's not a one size fits all, right? I mean, I think that I know so many people I've talked to that their organization is like, well, we've spent all this money on real estate and rent and we want to revitalize a downtown area. So everyone's back in the office where that may not work for people. Or you have some people that are like, well, we're going to be remote entirely where that might not work for people. And so I think that you know, organizations need to do this with their people, not to their people. And if you're not including them in the process and you're not finding out, you know, what did we learn over this past year and what works well and what isn't working and, and make it mutually beneficial, we're going to be in a whole host of trouble. I agree. Let's talk a little bit about personal health because the focus over the last year and a half or plus plus um, has been focused on keeping ourselves and our families safe workforces and workplaces have pivoted, allowing this remote or virtual experience. But there is really a tie, a very strong one between our personal health and the health of our work environment, not just the air we breathe, but sort of the the, the, the corporate climate. Yeah. Yeah. We always say that they're inextricably interconnected. And, and, it, and the reality is, is that you can have somebody who is emotionally, physically, spiritually, you know, financially, 
thriving in their well-being, but they work for a place where their leader doesn't care about them, they're worked to death, they don't have meaningful and purposeful work. In other words, the organizational health and well-being is poor, and it will literally suck the wellness out of them. It, it kind of, it, it uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer's research says that these toxic workplaces are the fifth leading cause of death in the United States and 8% of our healthcare spend. And I think that if you look at the challenges that we've faced the last year of the pandemic, I mean, let's be honest, I think that challenges really highlight or illuminate who we are as individuals and as organizations. And I think you saw the best of the best rise to the occasion and you saw the worst of the worst show their true colors as well. And so I, I just think that, you know, some people, um, they really kind of refound balance, if you will, at home, right? They reconnected with sleep and with their family and and other people didn't. And it's really, what is what is the workplace doing to nurture us to be as whole as possible? And that looks different for everybody. And the word that pops into my mind as you say this is reciprocity, right? As, as employees, yeah. we show up and we are responsible for a certain amount of deliverables. And conversely, the employer is also responsible for a certain amount of deliverables above and beyond a paycheck. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's for sure reciprocity. I love that you use that word and it, they, they go hand in hand. I mean, an organization, if it treats its people like crap and doesn't um, support them, it's not going to meet its deliverables. Right. And, and you can have individuals that are, you know, doing that, but at what cost or that they um, maybe they have checked out or they've disengaged or they have too much going on at home or whatnot, and they're not able to. And so I think we need to look at it from a spirit of mutuality, not, you know, not kind of big brother, not one size fits all. And when we talk about bottom line, because leadership and and corporate owners and stakeholders are interested in the bottom line. But when we look to the fulfilling all the dimensions of well-being of the workforce, inevitably the ROI goes up. Well, it does if you're looking at it from a, an effective holistic place. And, and why I say that is that if you, not to, to pick on it, but if you look at the world of worksite wellness, which I kind of grew up in before I shifted gears, a lot of the research that showed an ROI for putting in these what we call wellness or else programs, poke, prod, uh, punish people, right? Um, because we're going to save healthcare. A, people hate them. They have a negative net promoter score of 52 to 55 just in North America alone. The research that is non-vendor sponsored shows that they produce a negative ROI. And so I think we have to be really careful when we talk about kind of what we mean by ROI of wellness. I think if you look at the ROI of caring for your people and, and creating an environment where they can be whole, I like to look to the research of like the firms of endearment or the conscious capitalism movement, and they've tracked these very conscious business that look at uh, culture and leadership and well-being, and they look at it in a very holistic way, not a big brother approach. And if you look at the publicly traded ones, compared to the S&P 500, they've outperformed them by uh, 14 to 1 ratio over a 15-year period. So I think when, you, when you're talking about the ROI, I think we've got to be really conscious of what are, what are we actually looking at and what are we measuring, and I get really concern when people start talking about the ROI of health and well-being, and then they point to really crappy research and really flawed methodologies. So it matters, but we got to make sure we're looking at the right things. And secondly, and more importantly, now that we've gotten those technical details out of the way, I want to go back to the ROI and um, some of the research that you are citing, because I think this is really, really interesting. It's like, you know, well-being or else versus yeah. a more holistic, em empathic, humanistic approach to um, workforce wellness. That's what yeah. I'm hearing you say anyways. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, 
you know, when I first started in the worksite wellness space, it was really the compassionate, forward-thinking, probably more humanistic companies that invested in employee wellness anyway. And it was very holistic. They looked at career, they looked at, you know, the, or occupational, they looked at social, they looked at spiritual, they they looked at it in a very well-rounded, well-rounded way. And I think somewhere along the line, someone decided there needed to be a stronger business case of why you invested in people. And <laughs> and so then there was all this research that started to come out looking at the relationship of health risks and costs. And even the person responsible for that research said we had it backwards. And then you had all these vendors pop up that were doing surprising their own sponsored research that showed this positive ROI based on faulty research. And it kind of snowballed. And then the wellness provisions got into the Affordable Care Act. And all of a sudden, all of these jobs boomed where worksite wellness professionals wouldn't have had them before, mainly in health plans and insurance brokers. And it was all of this notion of, well, if you put in these programs, it's going to save you money on healthcare costs, which turned out not to be true. And so it was all kind of based on a fallacy. And it doesn't mean it doesn't make good business sense to invest in the well-being, but not in the in what it turned into. It went from this holistic approach to wellness or else, pride, poke, prod, and punish. And, and so, but if you look again at the organizations that really consider well-being as part of their employee experience, their uh, their cultural platform. It's really how do we take care of our people and how do we help them be whole and complete? And they're offering resources and programs for and with their people, not done to them. It's a very different experience. Thanks for clarifying that. And I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think it's really interesting when we go back to this humanistic model that when we are dealing with whole people in, in a heart-centered way, that maybe this this is the ROI that we're really trying to get at. You know, when when I see my colleague as a as a valuable human having his or her or their own experience, you know, and giving space for the dignity of that process, watch what happens. Yeah. Well, and I, I uh, Bob Chapman, who is the CEO of Barry Wamler and co-wrote a wonderful book called Everybody Matters. He says, "What's the ROI of caring for your people?" Like, you know, when people go try to pinpoint to ROI, like there has to be an ROI of why I would invest in my people. It's like, well, what's the ROI of, you know, upgrading your computer software program or, you know, <laughs> making sure you have good recruitment strategies? Like there's certain things you like when you're talking about people to try to translate them to a numerical like financial value is just really sad, right? There's so much more to people than that. And so if you're looking at them purely from a financial lens of what do you cost me or what are you giving me in return? That's really sad. And what about the kinds of conversations that we should be having? You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here because I think of sort of the tone that an organization takes on, you know, you walk into a business and you, you can feel the energy of it, right? If it's low tone or higher tone, you know, and maybe we can give some examples of some really, you know, higher toned organizations where you can tell that what we're talking about matters and, and plays a huge part of their policy. I mean, yep. one that pops into my mind because I'm a, a yoga person is Lululemon. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You look at Lululemon. I mean, Barry Waymiller, they're a manufacturing company, but you talk to anybody in any plant, any position around the world, and they talk about how they're treated like a, a caring member of a family, or you think about Patagonia, or you yes. think about Tom's Shoes or New Balance or Costco, you know, versus like a Sam's Club or Walmart, like all of these very conscious humanistic businesses, they, they have fiercely loyal 
customers. They have fiercely loyal employees. People are knocking down the doors to work there because they fundamentally care about people in a different way. And it's not that they don't care about their bottom line. Of course, they have a solid business model, but that's not their sole focus. They have a clear purpose. They're conscious about their culture. And again, then you see numerically in the long run, it benefits them hugely. And one doesn't need to be working in a large corporation like any of the ones that we've even spoken about. What what you're talking about and what the book speaks to rehumanizing the workplace scales down. Yeah. In fact, we made a specific point with the exception of maybe referencing one or two. We made a point in our book to highlight small to mid-sized businesses that are doing this because the big ones get all the glory. Be, right. Yeah. And there and the majority of our businesses are small to mid-sized companies. And so we made a point to highlight, you know, quote unquote, non-sexy businesses that are small to mid-sized, but are very humanistic, are very intentional about how they go about their business. And they're making a huge difference. And guess what? Financially, they're ridiculously successful, even though they're small, because they're not putting numbers before people. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Rosie Ward to learn more about her, her book, her organization. Organization. We're talking about rehumanizing the workplace, future-proofing your organization while restoring hope, well-being, and performance. To learn more, please visit drrosieward.com, on Twitter at Dr. Rosie, on Facebook and Instagram. Those handles are Dr. Rosie Ward. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is an absolute promise. Hang on just a second here. Before we break, I want to share something you might not know about me. I am a complete homebody. My home is the hub of my family. Home is my haven, castle, sanctuary, recording studio, office, boardroom, and my creativity laboratory. Architecture and design was my first career. Psychology and lifestyle management is what came next. And we all know that living in comfortable, attractive spaces that expresses our personalities makes us happy. And that's why I'm grateful to own and endorse Joybird Furniture Products. Joybird offers crisp, modern, customizable furnishings and accessories for every space. Joybird is furniture that fits your style in a wide variety of vibrant and durable designs. And guess what? It's finally here. Shop Joybird's Labor Day sale and take advantage of our biggest savings of the season at joybird.com. I just bought the earth-toned Azris rug for our Airbnb, and guests are already raving about the look and feel underfoot. Next on my wish list is the Lois bookcase with storage to spiff up and help organize my recording studio. Ordering online has never been easier or more fun. From design to customer care, Joybird has got you covered. Joybird Furniture stands by its quality and craftsmanship and is committed to a more sustainable future. If it's not everything you'd hope for, just send it back within 90 days. Each piece is made with incredible care using responsibly sourced materials that are free of harmful chemicals. Joybird is helping to conserve and restore Earth's precious natural resources through partnerships with groups like One Tree Planted. Simply put, Joybird Furniture is made with top-notch stain and scratch-resistant fabrics and comes with a lifetime warranty. Joybird Furniture can handle anything your family throws at it, literally. Create a space that brings you joy with Joybird. Visit joybird.com slash happiness and get 35% off your purchase. That's 35% off at joybird.com slash happiness. Let's take that brief pause. We'll be right back. 
To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. back talking about rehumanizing and reviving your workplace atmosphere. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest, Dr. Rosie Ward. Let's get back to the conversation, Rosie. We're talking about, you know, the compassionate workplace. Now I want to pivot a little bit and talk about the toxic workplace. And many folks out there and those who are listening, you know who you might be. We're working in toxic environments, but you were showing up and doing your job, going through it, delivering the best that you could. This is prior to the pandemic. The pandemic forced a real uh, reevaluation and changed in the professional landscape. Now people are returning to the office, which may be just as toxic as it was before, if not worse, landing everyone in the messy middle, as Rosie talks about. <laughs> yeah, well... You're right. And I think that, I mean, everyone has a different situation. So I don't want to undercut like, hey, I've got to suck this up because I need a paycheck, right? And I don't have the energy to search for something else. But I think as as the economy slowly but surely rebounds and people are hiring again, you know, ta- talented people have mobility in any kind of economy, in any kind of job market. And I think you're right. People this whole pandemic and everything that's transpired this last year has caused a lot of reevaluation of what matters and what's important for people where they're saying, you know what, I would rather take a lower paying job than to deal with this stress. Or I've realized, you know, how much I haven't been present for my family or how much I've neglected my well-being, or whatever it might be. And I think some people are um, having different types of conversations with their people leaders, perhaps setting different boundaries for themselves. Some people might have realized they're not willing to put up with some of that stuff anymore. And so I think some of these dehumanized toxic workplaces are going to be suffering because I don't think people are willing to, they they were starting to not put up with it prior to the pandemic. And then they probably were just in survival mode. And a lot of people are saying not worth it. Life has shown me this past year, it's too short. Um, and so, but to your point, the, the messy middle, we talk about the messy middle as there's no shortcut to change. And a lot of it is our own self-work. So if I'm a person who's in a, you know, toxic work situation, I've got some work to do to go kind of what, what matters to me? Like, what's my purpose? What lights me up? What energizes me? What am I willing to put up with? What am I not? Um, if I'm not comfortable having boundary setting conversations, I need to get a little bit more comfortable having that. If I'm not comfortable interviewing or applying for new jobs, I'm going to have to get a little comfortable with that. And so the, the messy middle is just really that space where there isn't a fast forward button, but where growth and transformation occurs that we have to go through, um, that ultimately will hopefully help us be stronger, better versions of ourselves. And the messy middle is like transformational is what you're saying. If if we're willing to sort of stand in it for a minute and we can kind of go, ew. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's action. Absolutely. I mean, of course, you're going to go, ooh, and you might run away or, you know, kind of go into the corner and suck your thumb <laughs> in the fetal position or something. <laughs> you want me to but, what? You want me to grow? You want me to stretch? Yeah, mm, yeah. I don't know. But this is what I always say to people is if you think about anything hard in your life that you have gone through that sucked, but on the other side, you learned or you gained a new appreciation or, you know, something about you became better. 
that's what we're talking about. And, you know, unless someone's gone through life, you know, in a bubble and has never been scathed by something and don't, doesn't understand it, but this is like resiliency 101. Like, you know what? I've messed up. You know, I lost a relationship. I lost a loved one. I lost something that mattered to me. I didn't make the team. I didn't make this or that. And I learned to either, you know, work harder because of it, or I learned to, you know, appreciate myself better or stand up for myself better or whatever it is. And and that's the mindset we have to go to. We have to recognize we have gotten through hard stuff before and that fire and that spirit is inside of us. And that's where the transfer, that's where the transformation happens. So while it's uncomfortable, like you can go around it, but like I, the, the best example I can give is, you know, if we've anyone who's ever lost something important to you or someone important to you where there's grief, if you don't let yourself grieve, that shoving that stuff down will come back eventually to bite you in the butt. It, it's not benign, right? And so if we try to ignore the stuff that's hard, it's not benign. It will come back and get in our way over and over and over. And this is a really good point about sort of the great global reset that everyone is being forced to go through is the acknowledgement that there has been a trauma, that there has been loss, even if we haven't been personally touched by it in our own household, everybody knows somebody who has. Exactly. And, and even if, even if we didn't know someone who died of COVID, our whole, everything we know to be true, our way of life, our sense of certainty has been lost. So there has been some level of grief and trauma and loss for people. It just looks different, but everyone to some degree has experienced it. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to show up as a leader even if you are not in a position of power or authority or uh, a director of your company, because it's my belief that everybody, no matter what we do in our lives, we are leaders. Absolutely. In fact, of our five rehumanizing principles, this is by far my, my favorite. And because you're right. I mean, we all know people who have the title, the power, the authority, and you would not consider them a leader whatsoever. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have coached C-suite people and I'm like, I don't care. You have that title. There is no leader in front of me right now. And, and we all know people who don't have that and they are absolutely a leader. And we can be a leader in our family, in our community, at work, et cetera. And so we have to shift our mindset that leadership is a title or a role and really look at it as a mindset and a set of behaviors. And so we look at leadership as maximizing our positive impact on the world by becoming our best fully authentic self, which we can't do if we don't wade in the messy middle, by the way, and and supporting those around us to break past barriers and step into their greatness. So if you're a parent, do you support your child in becoming a better version of themselves? If you happen to coach some kind of extracurricular activity, you're doing that. Do you do that with your friends? Do you, do you do that with your neighbors? Do you do it with your colleagues and kind of say, hey, I think you can do better. Or, hey, I got your back. And I just think there's so many opportunities where we can say, I can make a positive difference here. And so instead of shying away and waiting for someone else who I perceive to be quote unquote more qualified, what can I do to add value here? And I, I think this last year has shown us that we need everybody quite frankly, to start showing up as leaders in their lives. Yes. Less sort of the all hands on deck. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I like that. Let's talk about, you know, creating an environment or a climate of fearlessness within the organization, because a lot of corporate culture is very much fear based. It's very old school. It's not particularly effective. And yet. Yeah, it's there, right? It's there, Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, and so this one really is inspired by the work of Amy Edmondson from Harvard, and she's like the guru leading research of psychological safety. And really at at its core, uh, a fearless environment is one where psychological safety is high, meaning that I can risk speaking up, sharing my idea, asking for help, giving feedback, whatever that might be, and not fear that I'm going to be retaliated against, that I'm going to be judged, that I'm going to be laughed at, right? It's that, that, that we have this cohesiveness. And you think about it that certainly the people leader of a team has the largest impact on the sense of psychological safety, but we could have a family or a workplace or a community club or neighborhood where it's not psychologically safe because we've learned that if we speak up, someone's going to gossip about us for if we speak up, someone's going to laugh at us or whatnot. And so the fearless environment is really, can we honor people's humanity, right? And honor them as a human being and make it safe for people to show up and share. Yeah, I think that that that's the crux of it is the showing up and sharing that feeling as though that you're not going to be ridiculed or belittled for what you have to say, which is such a great skill, you know, to have. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And what's even more from a business standpoint, I will just say what's even more important and why they should care about it is many people might be familiar, but Google did a five year study. They called it Project Aristotle, and they were actually just seeking out to look at what were the qualities made up of their most effective teams. And guess what? Psychological safety was the number one factor that either contributed to team effectiveness or was the gatekeeper inhibiting it. So it's a sense, it's, it's not about like rainbows and unicorns. It's about, it's not, it's <laughs> no, about I hear you. Yeah. And I think that's what people don't realize. It's not, oh, everyone's happy. Like, no, we're having the difficult conversations we need to have. We're stretching each other, right? We're showing up as leaders and guess what? We, as a result, have higher performance and and better outcomes. At the end of the day, we all want to do good work. I, I think that that's yeah. really what drives us. Yeah, I mean, who who wants to show up and oh, I want to suck today, or I don't, no. <laughs> you know, I don't care about. I mean, most of us, right? We yeah, we want to we want to feel like we contribute. We want to do something that adds value. We want to feel effective at what we do, whatever that might be, and we want an environment that values that and honors the gifts that we have. And gives us space to grow or when we've sort of reached that, that, that growth ceiling, we know enough and value ourselves enough to take it to the next level and maybe go elsewhere. Exactly. Exactly. For sure. So if you were to maybe give two or three kernels of coaching to people who are listening, who are sort of in the, the, that netherland space of just like not knowing what's happening, you know, where they're going. They know they're going back to work, but what that looks like, they don't know. Or even if they can go back to the same profession, because in some cases, those industries have been wiped out. Yep. Yeah. First and foremost, I would just say, if you have not honestly given yourself space and permission to grieve, do it right? It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel mad and give yourself permission to like, let the, let yourself feel whatever's there. Because again, it's not benign if, if we stuff it down. And then I would say, you know, it, I always say to my coaching clients, congratulate yourself on being human, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, cheering perfect. squad in the background. Yeah. yeah, everybody's perfect. Or I mean, nobody's perfect. Everybody messes up. Like, Every, you know, so like you're not, you're not some special person that's on an Island that this is your, you know, it's only ever happened to you. And so just kind of go, okay, this is normal. And, and then just really start thinking about, okay, 
what have I learned about myself over this past year? What matters to me? What am I wanting for myself? And just start just maybe whether it's journaling or reflecting or if someone has a meditative practice, whatever it is, but we need to let ourselves stop doing and just kind of start being and and reflecting and really just the clarity will start to come of what what matters to you? What, where do your gifts shine? What energizes you? What sucks the life out of you at whatever stage you're at in your life? What is, what is most important? And we call that the build the lighthouse principle. But when you kind of start to get clarity of your purpose and what drives you and who you are at your best, that will then help inform whatever your next step might be. But you can't do that if you're in the middle of yuck and like grieving and judgment and pissed offness. You can't get to clarity from that. So you've got to give yourself space to deal with that if that's still there before you can start to look at, okay, I've let that out. I've grieved. I've whatever. Now what's next for me? And I just want to point out not one mention of um, putting a pen to the resume. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, but this is important to just sort of say, you know, that really you're talking about doing the inner work, getting the inner clarity, getting, getting grounded again before anybody does anything. Right. Because otherwise you start aim, here's what's going to happen. And I've seen this with so many people lately, you start aimlessly looking for the same type of job titles or whatever that sucked the life out of you to begin with, or you're not clear of what type of organization, or even if you got an interview, what questions you want to ask. I literally was having this conversation with someone this morning who's in the middle of a job search saying you are interviewing potential employers as much as they're interviewing you. And until you are clear about what your deal breakers are and what matters to you and where you can, how you can talk about how your gifts can shine. Um, you've got to do that because that's even going to guide where you search. And that's even going to guide perhaps how you tweak your resume. Very well said. And of course, I want to encourage everybody to go out and buy the book, Rehumanizing the Workplace, Future Proofing Your Organization While Restoring Hope, Well-Being and Performance. Dr. Rosie Ward, thanks for hanging out with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Oh, it was good fun. Let me give all of that contact information one more time to find out more about Rosie's work. Please visit drrosieward.com. On Twitter at Dr. Rosie, Facebook in, and Instagram are both Dr. Rosie Ward. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we're back, continuing the discussion about rehumanizing and reviving your workplace atmosphere. My next guest is Alan Willett who has a bachelor's degree in computer science and a master's degree in the management of technology and organizational change. Originally a software engineer, he quickly took on management positions as a result of his strong organizational skills and commitment and his work side by side with leading experts from around the world. He's written a couple of books. One is Lead with Speed, Fire Up Your Team, Power Your Engines of Development, and Make Your Organization Soar. The other, and I love this title, Alan, really do, Leading the Unleadable, How to Manage Mavericks, Cynics, Divas, and Other Difficult People. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, delightful to be with the wonderful Lisa. Oh, delightful Let's do this. to be with you. This is going to be some good fun. Everybody should polish up or uh, sharpen their pencil tips so you can take some notes here because 
<laughs> I have a feeling you are going to share with us a very fun and novel approach to, a, a, you know, a polymaths approach to leadership. Ooh, we're going to get all the dictionaries for this episode. This yes, will be fun. <laughs> yes, that's the, that's, the, that's the sidebar you can get. And you too could win a t-shirt if you know what polymath means. No, just kidding. <laughs> all right, Alan, let's jump into this because you said to me in our little warm-up conversation that you love to study different techniques, different processes, but you're married to none. You know, you do what's necessary. Yes. I, what I've learned is I'm a methodology agnostic because what it really is, is you have to be able to know the context and how to apply it. Uh, you know, a quick story, if you don't mind. We love uh, stories. Way back when, this is probably, oh, 20 plus years ago, I was really, I was a methodology zealot, dogma about the methodology. And I was working for another organization, and I was the most requested consultant there. And I was frustrated about it because whenever they called me back, they'd call me back over and over again. And it, I was never doing work on the methodology. It was doing other things. And it turned out it took a two-by-four to wake me up. When I was installing the methodologies in their organization to make it work, I found there was a lot of problems in the way of the methodology. Like they didn't have a good organizational strategy. They didn't have good uh, or training for people. They didn't have the right people in the right positions. So I would help them fix all those problems. And then the methodology worked really well. Do you see what was happening here, Lisa? I think so. <laughs> yes. Uh, it was the problems they were having that they were delighted that I helped them solve. So when they, I came back, when I was asked to come back again and again, it was to help solve more organizational development type issues. How do we get the right people in the right positions? How do we uh, power up these individuals to be great leaders? It wasn't about any methodology I did. It was about solving problems. And that's really a lot of times people get stuck on methodologies without thinking about how they're using the methodology to solve the specific problem. It's dangerous to be dogmatic. Well, it's, it is, it's dangerous and good to be dogmatic in a certain sense. You know, I think it's, it can help you. Ah, yes. But what, what should you be dogmatic about? I have an opinion, but I'd love to hear yours. You know, let's, let's come back on to the spot. You put me on the spot. <laughs> we'll put, we'll put a pin in that and come back to it because I wanted to ask you about, so okay. like when you come into a company and you are hired to consult and come in and whether it's problem solve or put systems into place what is the key ingredient that gets people's attention to be open to change, to be open and receptive to, to the leadership? Oh, I see. Yes. Okay. There's a little bit of organizational uh, melting if you have to, that it needs to occur. Uh, there's culture sort of gets stuck in a place. There's a lot of reinforcing behaviors going on. So one of the things I really like to do to help, people just sort of uh, be able to get change to take place is for people to recognize what's working well and what's not working well. And for them to start to question some of their systems of belief. Is this making sense? It is making sense. Because uh, uh, one of the systems of belief I've seen, like in high tech development, which is where my specialty is, they uh, believe in sometimes that testing is the best way to get quality into something. And what they really have to start to learn 
is design is the best way to get a high quality product. It, it, there's a cognitive dissonance that can occur where people have been grown up in a different culture of will. They, they develop their professional chops in a different system of belief. So people will often choose the familiar over the better. I paraphrase Virginia Satir there, that's okay. But that's why you got to melt the culture a little bit, get people to say, yes, we could try an experiment here. And those experiments often lead to permanent change to a new culture. When you talk about good design, you know, I'm thinking of like design thinking, you know, when you've got, when you've got a problem, the idea is, you know, you, you pour in a lot of options, a lot of thinking goes into designing, prototyping, running the experiment, course correcting, going back and repeating the cycle until you've got something that actually works. Yes. All the things you've said, and I'd like to add a bit. Please. I want uh, you to, I, uh, I want you to add. <laughs> so to me, one of the fundamental things is designs, good designs solve multiple problems. And so that's kind of the going back to the larger context again. I think all the things you said are great. You know, iterate, learn, iterate, learn. And also, I think it's important to be looking at the larger pattern. What are you iterating and what are the other things you're learning? I mean, other authors have talked about that, like Eric Reese talked about that in The Lean Startup, about how what they learned was people were loving their product for a different reason than they ever expected. And they were able to, once they recognized it, that they were able to pivot to that. But that was a lot. Uh, Eric, Eric Reese in that book, I don't think, gave himself enough credit for the really great thing they created to solve multiple problems. And the leadership skill that he brought to it was they recognized that the different problem they were solving was a whole different business model. So that's sort of a larger context that I have in mind when I think about design. So when you talk about leadership in the context of the books, Leading the Unleadable and Lead with Speed, there are critical differences between slow and fast projects. And I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Okay, terrific. Uh, you know, uh, I went to one organization, or really one of the Fortune 500. Uh, I don't name clients generally. Uh, Fortune 500, and they're a research development lab, fantastically smart people. And they had um, a list of problems on their board that they had prepared for me. They said, Alan, I want your help. Here's a list of problems. And I went up and I looked at this list of problems and I wrote W against some of them, O against some of them, F against some of them. Uh, the O was observations. F was, these are just facts. And the Ws were whining. <laughs> <laughs> and what I said is, what I don't understand is what your real, what your, what are you trying to achieve? What's your goal? And they said, we have to go faster. And my question was, faster to where? How will you know you're going faster? And that stumped them. So here's the difference between slow and pro fast projects to me. The fast ones actually know where they're going. And they can know they're getting faster about how they measure. For that whole business unit, what it turned out, their, their need for speed was based on being able to innovate faster than their competitors. And they were not even measuring that. They did not look at how often they beat their competitors to the marketplace with an idea and how often their competitors beat them. So once we got that, what their goal was, where they're going, they discovered two important things. One was they weren't as bad as they thought they were, but they could do better. And they now had a measurement system in place. And two is 
most of the things on their board were irrelevant to what they were trying to achieve. In some places, they were really trying to basically look for their keys under the light posts that's well lit when they really needed to go out into the dark field and discover a whole other area where they could do improvements that would really bring up their rate of innovation. So that's what speed is about to me, knowing where you're going, having a proper measurement system, and getting people to work on the right things to get better, faster, stronger. Got it. Now, and let's talk about the slow projects. Ah, you know, slow projects to me are beset by two, two big things. One is there's often a ton of rework. They think they're going fast. Uh, there's a, have you heard of agile with agile development kind of stuff? Yes, but for our listeners, I think it's important to, to describe it further. Okay. The quick summary is uh, one of the major things in agile methodologies is we deliver some new value to our customers every two weeks. Just keep cranking. And when I asked organizations, some many organizations are going that are doing this, they think they're going fast because they're doing this every two weeks. I say, how many of your uh, two-week cycles are dedicated to just doing rework? And they had to go away and look at it. And they'd come back to me and tell me, well, five out of the eight are just fixing problems. So you're not delivering any new value in those. Oh, yes, we are. We're fixing problems. I said, <laughs> <laughs> you see where this I is. I see where you're <laughs> going. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you're making them happier by fixing what you broke. That's not the value I'm talking about. The value I'm talking about is true innovations that bring a wow to your customers. And if you're spending all your time fixing those things, it's like a law of gravity. It's a physics law. The more time you spend in rework, the less time you spend in actually creating innovative features or innovative ideas for your customers to love. So we really have to drive out rework. Slow projects have a ton of rework. Let me just see if I get this right. And then we're going to need to take a little bit of a break. What I think I'm hearing you say is that, and I'm going to paraphrase what you said or quote you, is that fast products means that you innovate faster than your competitors, or at least in the sample that you were talking about, the example, right? Yes. Yes. So, but a slow project, which you think it's a fast project because you're cranking out um, new iterations every couple of weeks, but it's actually fixing something that was broken from the start, right? The company thinks that they're moving fast, but they're actually moving slow. Right. What you got to be careful of is you want to look at results, not sweat. Yeah. Let's take that break. And when we come back, I have several questions are popping in my mind. So let's take a break uh, to learn more about Alan Willett and his work, his books we're talking about today, Leading the Unleadable, How to Manage Mavericks, Cynics, Divas, and Other Difficult People, as well as Lead with Speed, Fire Up Your Team, Power Your Engines of Development, and Make Your Organization Soar. Visit alanwillett.com on Twitter at USA. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is the promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day. 
regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Talking with Alan Willett about rehumanizing and reviving the workplace atmosphere. Let's get back to it. Alan, I have to ask you, because this is a positive psychology show and we are talking about leadership, let's talk about the impact of happiness on leadership in the workplace and on ROI. Beautiful question. In my book, Leave with Speed, I wrote down uh, 21 immutable laws of speed. And to me, these are, as I mentioned earlier, laws of gravity. Uh, it's great you asked that. I just opened up my book, Immutable Law of Speed, number 21. Leading with joy from start to finish infuses those that follow with the joy of speed. Boom. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Exactly. I was thinking mic drop. Uh, you know, uh, a couple parts. Uh, two is, one, if your manager is constantly complaining and whining and feeling depressed and victimized, how excited is the team going to be? Yeah, not. <laughs> yeah. Burdened. you got you got to lead with joy. And I got to say, uh, you know, I realized something. Uh, fortunately, I realized this young in my career. A uh, long time ago, I used to be running. Uh, I At the time uh, in my work, I wrote about this, and I think I'm leadable. Um, I was actually miserable at my work, which was ridiculous. And at the weekends, I would sometimes go run an ultra marathon, you know, in trails where I'd have to wade a cold creek, climb up a mud hill. And I was doing that for fun. Well, at work, I was treating it, treating work like a cold, desolate trudge across the wilderness. And I said, this is wrong. I just got to have fun. And I just took ownership of my work. And I just started having a ball. My life got better and my all my teams got better. It's just lead with joy, lead with joy. And I think that speaks to doing, doing the work as an individual. You know, when we talk about improvisational leadership, right, the ability to be agile in one's approach to problem solving and leading people through challenges, you know, leading people and teams to, to victory. If you're not doing it with joy, your diluting benefit, actually. Absolutely. And I, I think uh, one of the things I like to talk about is the leadership sweet spot, which is, do you know, uh, like tennis rackets, uh, the sweet spot is really big. They make it, but it's a, a tension between th a m many opposing forces that creates a sweet spot. And you know, when you have you played tennis where you miss the sweet spot? Yes, I have. <laughs> and, and it just shakes and hurts your whole arm. Yeah. <laughs> well, you work harder when you're not hitting the sweet spot. You're actually working harder. You work harder and it hurts. Yep. I, I've hit I've hit balls really hard off the sweet spot and it hurts. The same is true with leadership. You got to find your your sweet spot, which is a combination of three big things to me. Uh, one is the value to others because, you know, the, you want them to – it's good to be appreciated, see the joy that's coming from the work you do. Two, you should have some competence at it. You don't need that 
absolutely. And the third is you have to find joy in it. If you get the joy and the value, you're going to develop the confidence, but you need that to get the sweet spot. And then all of a sudden, the work you do just becomes, it can still be extremely tiring, but it should generate lots of joy inside you, lots of happiness for you and others. And that's what I think leaders really have to do is really find their sweet spot and try to make it bigger and try to bring in the work that gives them the joy to do that. And then they can really maximize that immutable law of number 21, lead with joy. It makes your whole teams better. And I think it's fair to say that most people, when they go to work or when they do their jobs, they set out to do a good job. Most people really want to take pride in their work. And yet, if, you're, if your leadership is not um, valuing or prizing the work of its team and incentivizing it in some way, and by incentivizing, I don't mean by money, although money is always nice, but that the, 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 uh, the return for the team member or the employee has to be something that makes them feel valued beyond the paycheck. Absolutely. To me, it's... Uh... You, you have to have like a purpose. Uh, you know, I once saw Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Oh, we love him. To some, yeah. But he was talking to somebody on the uh, crayon factory manufacturing line. And of course, Mr. Rogers made the person cry, which is one statement. Do you ever think about how many children you bring joy to? <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> yes. And I, I think people really have to be clear about what the purpose is that they're doing and they have to be recognized and and I don't you know financial rewards are nice but the best thing is when your manager your leader says job well done or lesson well learned yes if it's got screwed up but they figured out how to do it better next time <gasps> that, we move on yes you move on that the, the, the uh, there's no shaming there's no admonishment it's a rec- recognition that the failure or the goof or the miss was an opportunity to learn. Absolutely. Uh, to me, like one of the things uh, I, I have really helped a lot of uh, organizations, teams and leaders with is how to reframe disasters, mm-hmm. which is to me, I say, what you got to do is use your disaster to get new, new speed, new purpose. So I basically say, gather the people, and I have all the steps in the book, but gather the people, break the bread, take the time to whine about how bad it hurts, but then figure out all the things that you learned that will make the whole organization better and faster. When I lead these sessions, when I teach others to lead these sessions, people leave these sessions so energized. They come in like, oh my God, it was we failed so badly. Things happened so wrong. They come out so energized. We as leaders have to be able to frame things in a way that constantly fires up the workforce. I was just going to add in there, you know, what what I'm hearing really is bringing humanity into these meetings, into the process that in old school leadership was very disconnected, right? Leaders were disconnected from the workforce and sort of the new school is that that leaders have to be plugged in. They have to be connected. They have to be human. They have to allow for the workforce, the individuals to have their human experiences and bring that to the party. Absolutely. 
Hey, you didn't ask the question, but I'm going to answer it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Leading the unleadable. You yeah. know, uh, th- th- this sounds hard, but there's a really big secret here. Uh, Leading the unleadable is really about unwrapping the gifts of the unleadable. Because what you got to realize is mavericks, cynics, divas, other difficult people. You said it earlier. Nobody wants to harm the organization, or at least so rarely that it's not even worth considering. People want to do good work. They're trying to do good for the organization. And sometimes they cross a red line. The Mavericks, for example, they really, they always want to make the status quo better. But they cross the red line when they don't recognize the history and why it got that way and the good work people did to get it where it is today. They start to step on toes, make people angry. They cross the red line. Cynics are great. You know the very optimistic thinkers need somebody to poke coal in their eyes once in a while. The cynics are great at that. But they can cross the red line too. So it's really, leaving the unleadable is about helping people direct all their great skills in a way that's most valuable to themselves and others. And so that's the whole theme of that book. How do you bring people into harmony with the organization and create a constructive conflict? Conflict will happen. Destructive conflict sucks, but constructive conflict is great because from that heat, you get new ideas, you get new innovation. I, I love this. I, I want to ask you, though, what, what the divas place is at the party. <laughs> oh, hey, divas are great. Divas want things perfect for them. Right? For them. For them. If they're leading a project, do you want a, a, a project leader that's not trying to make things perfect for their project? so where they cross the red line is where they don't recognize that there's other people trying to do the same for their projects. Yeah. It's not just only about them. It's not just only about them. And, and really, you know, so what I have found is the problem is when they cross the red line, when they start to do harm to others. And it's really, it's not that hard to take that great skill. They're, they're pointing in a good direction. They always are. The Mavericks that are across the red line, they're trying to make things better. But they're just like a bull in a china shop with all the other people around them. More than once I've helped Mavericks become like fantastic, charismatic leaders because they now are taking the time to say, thank you for all this work. I can't believe how good this is. Do you think we could make it better? And here's my ideas. I see where you're leading us. I, I, no pun intended. The, the, the idea of identifying the strengths in each of these character types and making, making the most, most of those strengths. And then when they do cross the red line, as, as you put it, making them aware that they have done so and why and how it's not actually in service to the goal. That's correct. In chapter five, the most read chapter in Leading Unleadable is how to give feedback to make a positive difference. I walk people through the steps of that chapter about you. Basically, you did it very well there. People need to recognize they're often very angry at this person. And what I encourage them to do is like do a sweat lodge or a sauna or something (laughs) to, to recognize their emotions and set them aside. You can let people know. But know that they weren't trying to cause you harm, even though you feel very harmed. Because a lot of times where leaders go wrong is they come in like a ball of fire angry about how this person tried to hurt everybody 
with their really horrible behavior. They weren't trying to do that. They often weren't aware of that. You need to just be able to chill, chill out and be able to lay down the facts. Did you know when you did this, this is what was occurring? What are your thoughts about that? Pretty simple. <laughs> I want to you sort of toot your horn a little bit because you say you don't like to talk about your clients, but it's out there oh. in public record that Alan Willett, you, yes, you, that your clients around the world include HP, Oracle, Microsoft, NASA, General Motors, Intuit, OnStar, and Cornell University. So you come to the table with... And and many others. And many others. I should say, and many, many, many others that you can't share. But you, you come with a lot of experience. And what I appreciate most about you and our time together is the the enthusiasm and the, the, the giddiness with which you approach your work. And I, that is infectious. You know, when we talk about happiness being a positive contagion, I believe that just you showing up in these environments and sharing that part of yourself must inspire a lot of people. Thank you. Well, I it's appreciate true. that. Did you want to say one, one more thing? I have a closing note, which is, uh, you know, I just have a call to action for all our listeners. Do it. Call to action. Do good in the world. That simple. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes, I I am on board. Sold. I'm. Uh, you have you have led me to the trough of wanting to do good in the world. <laughs> to learn more about Alan Willett, please visit alanwillett.com. On Twitter, he's at Alan Willett. USA. Today, we've been talking about Alan's two books, Leading the Unleadable, How to Manage Mavericks, Cynics, Divas, and Other Difficult People, as well as Lead with Speed, Fire Up Your Team, Power Your Engines of Development, and Make Your Organization Soar. This has been so much fun. Thanks for hanging out with me. A pleasure. Thanks for joining us on today's show. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Rosie Ward and Alan Willett, wishing you kind thoughts kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>